Every one of us knows heartache, the sweet melancholy of a love that just doesn't work. Today's guest traces much of her musical inspiration to that pain. She's the multi-talented Dessa, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me from his home in Rhode Island is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, artists, and more to make sense of the stories that shape public life in the United States today. This week, we're joined by the multi-talented singer, rapper, writer, and podcaster, Dessa. Dessa, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, you know, your your talents are are immense, and there's a lot that we want to talk to you about. But I'm curious, uh, where does the creative spark originate for you? Yeah, I think for me, the love of language is at the base of everything that I've ended up doing. So I remember even as like a really, really little kid, um, collecting new words with the same kind of gusto <laughs> that... You know, like some kids collect rocks or some kids really get into dinosaurs. I just loved learning the word Fortnite, you know, from <laughs> Peter Rabbit. I just got so excited to like add another fancy one to my collection. So for me, that's always been part of my life. Yeah. And, and so did, did I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine you as a, as a, as a child, as a, we're talking about like, you know, journals full of poetry or essays or mm. you know, music. Um, some really lousy poetry. I would say that, you know, in the beginning, probably my enthusiasm and my gusto wasn't matched by prodigious talent. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of, a lot of juvenilia, but, um, but yeah, I wrote some, I wrote some poems early. You know, I had the idea that I wanted to be a writer, but you know, at eight and nine and 10 and 11, um, you don't really know what that might look like. And I, and I was also interested in music, but just through the luck of the draw, my mother happens to have like a really, really beautiful voice. She did when I was a kid. She could sing Whitney very easily. And Whitney Houston is a very difficult singer to match. And I just sort of figured by the time I was in my later teens that my odds weren't super good for making it professionally if I wasn't even like the best singer at my address. <laughs> <laughs> so your 2018 book, My Own Devices, True Stories from the Road of Music, Science and Senseless Love, earned rave reviews. I, I just want to read the book description because those in our audience who may not be familiar with you, will, this will give you an overview of, of who and what you are. And so the cover description reads, Dessa defies category. She is an intellectual with an international rap career and an inhaler in her backpack, a creative writer fascinated by philosophy and behavioral science and a funny charismatic performer dogged by blue moons Blue moods and heartache. Break down the book for us. I, we could do a whole show. I realize on that, but tell us about the book, how it came to be, and and really what it is. And I've I've read most of it, and it's just it's beautifully written. I'm I'm well, greatly, in, greatly in awe. 
Thank you. Yeah. So I've always really liked trafficking in true stories, even before I knew exactly what those genre names might be. So I think I think one of the sexiest kind of corners of the literary world is creative nonfiction, even though it has hands down the least sexy genre name, you know, it like names itself twice by what it isn't. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Um, for a lot of writers, they can <laughs> they could really they could use an update on that particular term. But I loved writing true stories in the same way that like, um, I don't know, fiction in some ways felt a little bit daunting, kind of approaching a completely blank canvas, whereas writing nonfiction felt more like a photographer, you know, like you were keeping your eyes open for the artful moments of real life. And for me, at least as a reader, every story is more poignant when there's like the last line written in invisible ink. And this really happened. So I loved the essay form. So I was writing kind of short pieces, you know, maybe a few, a few, a few pages at a go. And that book, My Own Devices, collects a lot of essays, kind of bite-sized chunks into a larger narrative thread about a really, really long romance that was very, very hard to try to keep afloat. And about me learning what it was like to become a, a touring rapper, you know, so figuring out how to get in the van with the rest of the guys in my rap crew and travel first around our state and then around the country and eventually around the world. Do, do you keep a diary or a journal or have you or still still do you? I do and I hate it. I hate <laughs> it. It's eating vegetables. It sucks. But it's the only way to remember, I think, um, A, it, it can be fodder, you know, for future work. And then yeah. B, I think it keeps me honest. I think we're better at remembering feelings than we are and ideas than we are at remembering how to sequence those feelings or to really appreciate the duration of them. So like when you get a headache, you notice that. But then in the afternoon when, you know, your friend says to you, oh, how's your head? And you go, oh, actually, it's fine. You might not notice exactly the moment that headache ends, although you certainly noticed when it began. And so I think that keeping a journal helps me understand how long my feelings and ideas have actually lasted. Mm -hmm. so, so you actually uh, earlier in your career, you've done so many things, but you were a technical writer for medical companies. And we talked about this uh, off air before we taped here. Tell us how that influenced your your later writing. Uh, you've mm. written, we, I would note you've written for the New York Times. It's not just the book that you've done. Talk about the medical uh, part of your your career. Yeah, I'm. So after I graduated from college, uh, I graduated a little bit a little bit early from the University of Minnesota, which is my home state. With a degree in philosophy, correct? Do exactly. Yeah, yeah. With a degree in philosophy, so a lot of interest in like ethics and philosophy of science, that kind of stuff. But obviously it's not like there's a, you know, philosophy office you can go to report to for your first day of work. I mean, okay. trying to figure out exactly what the next step was, was sort of tricky. And so while I was trying to develop um, some inroads in the artistic fields, so writing poems and performing at slams and learning how to make some music, I was also serving tables, which is a great way because the hourly can be really high if you're at it, you know, if you find yourself at a good restaurant, a great way for a lot of artists to make the money to finance their life. It was not a great way for me to do it because I sucked as a waitress. But <laughs> just, I, I like, there is an art to it. Like, I just, great servers have like clocks, like a wall of clocks, like at the airport in their heads that know when table five needs more water and table six needs the bill. And I, I just had a blank wall. <laughs> like, I was surprised all the time when, about what people requested. So, <laughs> 
I, uh, I talked to my father just kind of talking out the challenge of trying to figure out a high buck gig that could help me finance my life, but leave a lot of hours left over, you know, um, to develop my, my skill and high buck gig at that time, meaning, you know, 20 bucks or 35 bucks an hour or something like that. And he suggested tech writing. And so I interviewed with a firm based again in, in Minneapolis where I live and it was thrilling and terrifying. And I ended up for, for several years, essentially writing a lot of cardiac technology stuff. So the kind of, um, the kind of material that would accompany like a pacemaker for, in, for implant in a patient, the kind of thing that maybe a, a physician or the sale, the physician would, would refer to when he or she is speaking to the sales representative about a particular brand of pacemaker. So I, I got really into it. You know, I spent a lot of time looking at like rotating three-dimensional hearts, beating water on my computer to try to better understand how to write clear, crisp instructions. So during this period, uh, you became interested in rap. Is that correct? Was it during this time period when, mm. when, when you did? And, and there's a great passage in your book, the first time you actually did rap. It was in a car with a boyfriend. If you can maybe talk about both those, how rap came into your life and how you did your first, essentially did your first song in a car. Yeah. Um, so for me, I had been interested in language and writing for a really long time, interested in music for a long time, but I hadn't written a lot of rap verses. And so when I had, was freshly out of college, I became a, a really big fan of a local group, just phenomenal stage presence and a playfulness and an authenticity that felt really new to me. And I secretly very much wanted to be asked into this group, but you don't want to ask, you know, you don't want to ask someone else to ask you out. They just have to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I've been, I've been hanging out with, with those folks. And I had also been at the same time learning how to write and perform in another group that I was part of. So just kind of getting my sea legs in the form. Um, I started dating one of the guys in the group that I so admired. And he had a lot of faith in me even before I had really honed my craft very, very much. I think he, he saw some promise anyway. And, and he asked me a couple of questions as I was trying to improve, like, how come you don't write rap the way that you write essays? Cause you're confident and you're comfortable and you have a natural, like authentic voice in your essays. And I think my rap just probably sounded sort of imitative. You know, I was just trying to do stuff like the stuff I'd recently heard. And he asked to hear me perform while we were driving around and we were in the parking lot of an old country buffet. And I said, I was a little too shy. You know, he was so good at it. I didn't want to do it in front of him. And so he put a beat, like he turned off the radio and he left the car and then he had me roll down my window a little bit. And then he pounded out a beat on the top of the hood of the car and listened to me rapping through the cracked window. Yeah. So that was a formative moment in my that's like that's like a, that ought to be a scene in a movie somewhere. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Plus, it was a ridiculous car. Tell us what the car model was. Oh I, my god! Is I had a... never heard of it until I read your book. It's what called a it? Ford Festiva, and it has to weigh all of like nine pounds. <laughs> like you could put it in your purse when you're done with it. So, it was a really tight. It wasn't a tough. Like we were not in an Escalade. <laughs> we're in a really tiny little clown car. Yeah. Do 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 and so uh, you have been part of the collective Doom Tree. Now, for those of you, for those of in our audience who might not know what the Doomtree Collective is, what is the Doomtree Collective? 
Yeah, so I think in um, in independent music, and by independent music, I mean um, music that's made without the injection of capital from like a, a major label. There are a lot of sort of just natural DIY cohorts, although we probably would never use the word cohort, uh, <laughs> that form. And so this this group, Doomtree, when I met him, it was just, they were the group that I really liked watching them perform. I thought their lyrics were true and honest and angry in a way that felt constructive and exciting, not just tear downish. Um, they were telling stories that I was interested in and they were funny. They're charismatic on stage. And as time progressed and there seemed to be a little bit of like interest in the kind of music that they were making. And then initially, or excuse me, after I was joined in, I was also making with them. We just sort of slowly grew into the kind of infrastructure that you'd need to also become a label. And it was without a lot of fanfare, you know, initially it was like making demos, sending them out to other major labels, hoping to get signed. No bites. <laughs> so we go, okay, well, we should release it ourselves. Uh, how do you become a small business in Minnesota? Somebody's going to have to go to that website and do it, right? Okay. How do you make merchandise? Well, there's got to be somebody who screens print stuff. Okay. Well, we could go to Kinko's ourselves and make our own, you know, photocopy our own album art. This is too slow. We could get a pro proper printer to do it. We just kind of learned the skills one by one that we'd need to become sort of a, a proper tax paying <laughs> uh, label and eventually also you know, in addition to being a band, we're sort of a kind of a production house and a, and a music music entity as well. Well, you, you mentioned earlier sort of uh, not just sort of growing into the comfort of being a songwriter, but also uh, the, 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 the presence that you have to have on stage and learning to, to, to really engage an audience. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? What, what is, is there a secret sauce? How do you how do you actually um, connect with an audience like that? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a secret sauce, but unfortunately, it's a different recipe for almost everyone. So trying to, <clears throat> in my case, trying to unlearn a lot of what I presume a show has to be like was a big part of it. And I think very often that's true of writing as well, that there's so much, there's so much clutter in your head about the way this goes, how a novel works, how a poet, how a poem works, what a what a love poem looks like. We are so, so, so um, inculcated with those cliches of form that to try to find out how to be your truest self, you've got to really somehow find a way to suspend yourself upside down and let all of your assumptions fall out of your pockets to even examine them, to know they're there. And so for me, um, I was excited early. I don't think, I, again, I don't think... <laughs> I don't think I came, I took stage fully formed. You know, there's a lot of very cringy moments. I know that one of the first performances that I did, you know, you want to look nice. And so I bought a pair of what I thought were really flattering satin pants. And then I get on stage and I'm so nervous that my knees are shaking and the lights are so bright and satin is so reflective that I look like I have like the torso of a woman and then like the legs of a waterfall it was just constant <laughs> motion you know so those are some of the things you learn to avoid um but yeah trying to figure out like even when you're excited not to yell too much that's a big deal you'll blow your voice and even if you do one good concert it's going to sound bad in a week because you need to have a voice every day you know we used to perform seven of eight days or so on the road and 
learning also how to move um, within the confines of the spotlight. That was a big deal. You know, knowing that if I go like this, people can't see my expressions, but if I tilt my face up, they can see, right? They can see the way my eyebrows work and knowing how far can you extend your hand before it's, <clears throat> before it's off screen or out of the light. I think learning how to move your body in the service of a feeling was part of it for me too. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's Popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University, in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutus. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is the multi-talented performer, singer, rapper, writer, and podcaster, Dessa. You can find all of her latest work on her website, www.dessawander, that's D-E-S-S-A-W-A-N-D-E-R.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at Dessa Darling. That's D-E-S-S-A-D-A-R-L-I-N-G. So one of your current projects is a monthly release called Ides. And your latest is uh, Life on Land. And Let's listen to a selection from it, and then when we get back, we'll have you talk about it. I know how the typos leave. Eyes open, but the mind's asleep. Flash frozen in the driver's seat. Lights in motion, but they're lost on me. Yeah, so Life on Land was uh, was released just a couple of months ago, and it's one of the singles in this series that you mentioned, Ides. You know, initially, my collaborators and I, the two musicians with whom I often work like on the production, on the music, their names are Lazy Beak and Andy Thompson. You know, usually, when it's not pandemic season, the way that uh, an artist would go about recording and releasing her work is very cyclical. So like, you stay home for some months, you write and record an album, you release it, and then you go on the road to monetize it, essentially. You know, you promote it till nobody really cares anymore, and then you go home and you write another one. And without the, the touring part, you know, of, our, of this past year, I decided to try to really reconsider, at least short term, how we were making music. You know, I, f I found myself like, I'm watching a lot of serial stuff on Netflix, and I really liked the fact that like, there's something more to look forward to. You know, <laughs> I want, when I go to bed tonight, I get to see the next installment right now for me of like Masters of Sex, the, the Netflix special. Um, and I liked that idea of, I don't know, instead of a one drop of all the music, giving, giving folks something to look forward to on a monthly basis. And then also to be totally frank with you, we had to figure out how to monetize music. Um, 
streaming, as you might imagine, really disrupted that entire market. It's free to listen to music now, which means it's harder for a performer to get paid. And the way that it worked before the pandemic was you made your money on the road. And then all of a sudden there was no road. So for us, we tried to release these songs once a month and have them be accompanied by like um, a limited edition, cool, collectible merch item that could help us try to build a new model to finance the work. Dessa, I've heard you say that a lot of your solo work has sort of a melancholy feel to it. Uh, and and I got to tell you, one of my favorite songs is Good Grief. Um, I, I sort of, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the origins of that song, but also uh, about the music video, which I found uh, very theatrical, uh, sort of cinematic. There was a story that was being told in the video too, and I, I'm wondering how that process comes to be. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks for asking. Um, I think I do just lean a little bit blue. And I, for many years, I think I understood that to be sort of a failure. Like it was an indictment of the choices that I was making. If you're kind of sad a bunch of the time, you're sort of doing it wrong. I don't know that I think that anymore. You know, I think that our dispositions are are heritable. <laughs> And I, and I think that our mood is the product of a lot of different variables, right? There's the circumstance, there's, um, there's the, the maybe genetic pre you know, inclination or the, or the genetic, um, neurochemical fingerprint that you've inherited for both of your parents. And, and I, I think I was just sort of beating myself up about being sad, which doesn't help a sad person. And <laughs> I, I think I just sort of like embrace it that, that yeah you gotta be mindful. You don't want to be miserable, but like leaning a little blue is when I write most of my, the stuff that I I'm proudest of. So with that song, um, good grief, I think, you know, a lot of the lyrics do sort of like examine, um, when grief can be in the service of a person, when is it good essentially? Right. And can it be a clarifying feeling? Can it temper a person like steel, you know? Um, what does it do to a personality? Except it rhymes. <laughs> the lyrics <laughs> rhyme. <laughs> uh, and then, oh man, I mean, music videos are, I, I think they're super interesting, even as I watch other artists do them in my, in my general level of like artistry, because we don't have huge budgets for them. So it really is a product of like some very creative thinking, usually from, on part of the artists sometimes, but also on part of the directors. So the director there that I worked with is a dude, um, super talented named Mercy's May. And I like wrote a text message to the front man of another band that I liked, you know, who I thought had sort of like a good, cool stage presence and seemed kind of, I don't know, he seemed sort of actory to me. I said, yo, will you be in my music video, please? And he was like, sure. And so we went up to a very cold cabin in like the north of Minnesota. So cold. And um, we bought a bunch of, I think a paraffin was the accelerant. So something to burn. And I had seen on the internet a way that you could create with angled fans, a fire tornado. If you like started a fire, essentially like in a metal fire pit or something. And then you were able to blow the wind of the fan at just the right angle and, and do that several times with several fans. You could get a cool fire going. I think we were awake for like, we were there for 26 hours and it was on our very last drop of paraffin that we finally got the tornado going. So that was a big one for us on a cold night. Yeah. It is this, is this, is, is, are you consciously telling the story behind the song in that music mm. video or is that, are they independent works of art? 
Oh, that's such a good question. I think, and I'm, I'm really interested to see how other artists answer that question too. Because I think sometimes you have the lyric musical video, the, the literal musical video, you know, where someone is like, I was walking and then I stopped. Like, and it's very much like acting out scene by scene the lyrics to the song. And sometimes you have one that just feels sort of like thematically related. You know what I mean? Okay, this feels kind of wishy-washy and sad and nostalgic. And this looks wishy-washy and sad and nostalgic. And then sometimes you have people who say this is two tracks, you know, that we've got two train parallel tracks running and they're going to be complementary. I would say that I probably land somewhere in the middle of those extremes and that I think you do see a relationship forming there. And I think you do see a couple in this case, like trying to figure out how much hurt they can bear. You know what I mean? Like how much grief can they endure and still find, um, solace and meaning in their in their relationship so we have to hear about your bbc iHeartRadio podcast deeply human tell us about that thanks yeah um i got an email a couple of years ago now i think that was like uh from a, from a friend at apm american public media that said hey we're doing a joint project with the bbc and it's like a science podcast and they might be looking for an american host any chance you'd be interested? And I think I yelled at my computer, you know, like, yes, I'm interested. And, and uh, I was really excited by the prospect. You know, my family's like, we're a lot of radio nerds. My parents both like know Morris code. <laughs> and, uh, and I interviewed for the gig when I was, um, I had like a, a modest show in London and the, <laughs> the commissioner for the BBC World Service was kind enough to like meet me backstage <laughs> amidst all these open suitcases, you know, before the show and chat a little bit. And we, we hit it off well enough to, to give it a go. So the podcast is, is airing now it's out now. And it's essentially like a, like a 22 minute episode every time that investigates some facet of human behavior with, I hope well-written stories and also some interviews with really, really, different kind of experts. So why do we get deja vu? Um, and I'll interview, you know, a, a cognitive psychologist and um, an astrophysicist and write kind of a, an essay that connects all of the information that, that is gathered throughout the course of those interviews. Well, one of the episodes is sad songs. Why do we love sad songs? Why? Cause we do. Cause we do. Yeah. I mean, it, I, it's interesting. I, that's such a simple question, particularly for someone in like who makes a bunch of sad songs and who is moved by sad songs, that it's weird not to have an immediate, you know, one or two sentences in which I'm totally confident. But I think in a lot of ways, the jury is still really out. There's a lot of ideas. Um, so in the podcast, one of the things that that I found really interesting is that the degree to which a person is empathetic might be an indicator to which um, the extent to which that person is likely to enjoy sad songs. So some researchers in like some Finnish researchers had tried to figure out if there was a correlation between like personality types and a proclivity towards sad music. And that was one personality attribute that that seemed related. And then also just like what makes sad music sad? One of the interest, most interesting answers I got was that it might be the case that like the melodies, you know, kind of slow, often kind of cascading, they sound like crying, you know, that there might be some of the formal features of sad music that resemble the sounds that sad people make. 
I thought that Dessa, was. I could talk to you all day, and I would encourage everybody to go visit DessaWander.com and check out all of your creativity. Thank you so much for being with us today. She's Thank Dessa. Uh, that's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For Wayne, I'm Jim, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>